This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Cassie Holmes is a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and author of the new book, Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. It is based on her popular MBA course, which explores the science of happiness and how to apply it to work and life. Today, Cassie and I talk about the determinants of happiness and how focusing on time can increase our well-being. She explains why having more free time doesn't necessarily make our lives more meaningful, and she shares strategies for reframing the hours that we do have so that they are more enjoyable, fulfilling, and productive. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to be talking to you. Oh, it's such a treat. I'm excited. Thanks for having me. So you you work at UCLA Business School. You're a, you're a professor there at the business school. And so you you teach a very famous course. And I would love to start with hearing kind of more about that and how you focused in on the science of of happiness. And how does that stem from or how does that relate to marketing? <laughs> All good questions. Yeah. So my PhD was in marketing and my training is basically as a social psychologist. And when I finished my PhD program, I went to my first job as a professor was at Wharton in Philly, where I taught traditional marketing courses like brand management. But my research has always been on happiness and in particular, the role of time And driven by happiness, when UCLA approached me, I'm from San Diego, and I love sunshine. And so when UCLA approached me, I was like, yes, I want to raise my children in sunshine. So I came to Anderson about six years ago, 
And when I joined, I continued to teach more traditional marketing courses like advertising, brand management. But my research has always been on time and happiness. And sadly for us academics, (laughs) nobody reads our research papers other than like a few fellow academics when we're going out for promotion. And given that I care so much about time, I was like, man, there's a lot of insights from the work, both that I've done, the research that I've done, as well as my colleagues. And I want to invest my time in disseminating these learnings to our students. And so I went to the administration and I'm like, I want to teach a course on what I know about. I want to teach a course on happiness. And at first they were like, what are you talking about? Happiness in business school? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, exclusive. (laughs) And then I came with them with the data to show just how important it is because the research shows that Happy employees are more engaged, better performers. When we feel happier, we're more creative, adaptive in our problem solving. And I made the case that we want to educate our students and train them not just to have the skills to get their first job, but to really thrive throughout their careers. And for that, they also need to figure out how their careers fit within their lives. And so I convinced them that I could teach this course. And I've been teaching it for four years, and it's called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design. And it has been so rewarding and so fun to see the impact that it's had on my students. So I teach sort of regular MBAs, like the full-time MBA. So they're, they're in their late 20s at that exciting early stage of their careers. I also teach executive MBAs. So these are folks well into their careers and their 50s trying to sort of figure out how do I balance this family, you know, these the family as well as career. And so across the board, it's been really great to see how it's impacted their sense of connection with each other, because that's a big thing of what I talk about, like genuine social connection, a sense of meaning, taking care of oneself so that it is sort of shifting from this do, 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 and driven by sort of very abstract notions of success Mm -hmm. that our business school students are sort of enraptured in to think about their well-being and sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. And happiness, you know, it's it's a pretty broad topic, right? And I imagine that there are a lot of factors that contribute to someone's happiness. So within the context of a business school, like how how far back are you going? How deep are you going? Do people have to, in your experience, deal or wrestle with certain aspects of their past in order to be happy? Can can it just kind of be a survey of where you are now and from a more cognitive behavioral place? Like what do you do going forward? Is it related to the meaning that you apply to work? Like what is the framework for your definition of, of happiness? Absolutely. When I use the term happiness, I'm referring to what the social psychology as well as sort of more behavioral economics literature refers to as subjective well-being. And within that, there's two components. There's that emotional, like how you're feeling in the moment, in your days. So like I ask you right now, how are you feeling right now? 
but also it involves this more evaluative component, like how satisfied are you about your life? And that satisfaction about also pulls in these notions of meaning. Now in the course, what I am looking to do, and actually, so to we don't go into one's past. That's more sort of clinical psychology, and that's outside the realm of what I know about and what I do. <laughs> but for this, my students, it's really about decision-making. The first part of the course is how do we make decisions to make it so that we feel better in our days, so we have greater energy, we feel more positive emotion than we do negative emotion. And then towards the end of the course, I start talking about the sort of construct of one's career overall, one's life overall. And there we pull into these sense of meaning, sense of satisfaction. And meaning is such an interesting in itself. And, and we've done actually research to see like people are like, you know, is it meaning or happiness? And I would suggest that it's both mm -hmm. like what we should be striving for. And that I certainly encourage folks to do both in the course, as well as in the book is invest in ways that both make us feel good <laughs> in the days, but also make us feel good about our lives more generally. In our research, we've actually looked at across the world, like tens of thousands of data points of asking people how happy they feel and then how much meaning they have in their life. And they are highly, highly correlated. And so that's to say, yes, there are instances in which you feel sort of enjoyment, but not much meaning and meaning, but not much enjoyment. But those are rarer. And really, again, what I would love for folks to feel is both enjoyment and fulfillment from the hours they spend. But those hours, of course, add up to our lives. So I imagine that, you know, you're, you're teaching MBAs or executive MBAs. These are driven people. These are people who are pro have probably historically loaded their lives with busyness, responsibility. They're high achievers. And I always wonder about people like that. I mean, I think, you know, from a personal standpoint, I'm curious about this. Like, I think I felt when I was younger and if I wasn't achieving anything, like there was this great sense of loss almost or loneliness. Like I, I didn't feel happy unless I was like in hyperdrive towards something. And obviously like I had to do a lot of work to figure all that out and blah, 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 but, <laughs> and I'm still a work in progress, of course. But if someone is kind of hardwired to be driving and doing, how do you begin to let them understand that like there is a space where there's value kind of beneath that and, and the, the drive, you know, how do you help people separate those things out? Yeah. And it's such a important question because there is the hard wiring, but some of that comes from, it's not like genetic per se, it's our culture, right? We yeah. are go, 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 do, do, do culture. We actually even, and you talked about sort of loading things onto our plate, this idea of feeling like we don't have enough time time to do everything that we've sort of signed up to do and that we think that we should be doing and could be doing at every moment. And in our research, we refer to that as time poverty, this acute sense of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. 
And in a national poll, we found that nearly half of Americans feel this way. And it actually runs across the age spectrum. But in youth, actually, or early in our careers, you do see there is this drive, this sort of forward thinking of the future and this idea of like, if only I do more, then I will, you know, succeed, whatever that means, that it is, I, I would say, actually, a lot of my work is counter programming against the constant doing, mm. like, absolutely, we find in our, our work that we are driven to be productive, it gives us a sense of purpose. And oftentimes, and, and that can come from the work that we do, whether it's paid work, it can come from volunteer work, it can come from really enriching hobbies, it doesn't have to be all the time <laughs> for us because that's what leads to burnout and depletion and a sense of exhaustion because we find that when we feel time poor, our work shows that it makes us less healthy, so we're less likely to exercise. It makes us less nice. We're less likely to help others out. It makes us less confident and our work shows it makes us less happy. And so in my work and in the course, and then the course led into me writing the book so that more people could benefit from the insights that I share in the course. It's really about shifting time management from being away from efficiency and that sense of like productivity for this, like with this idea of like checking things off and getting things done and actually shifting it to what's worthwhile mm. so that the time that you're spending, it is worthwhile. And in some cases, that is about the work that you're doing that's sort of in line with your overarching goals. But also what can be really worthwhile is taking a space mm -hmm. to reflect, taking space to really be in the moment with yourself or with the people that are right there in front of you. And it's, it's funny because this is just like a sort of concrete example, but it picks up on your question of like counter programming. And we showed in experiments going into a regular weekend around, among regular full-time working folks, we randomly assigned half. We said, spend this weekend, treat it like a vacation. We told the others, treat this weekend like a regular weekend. And then on Monday, we followed up and we measured their happiness again. Those who treated the weekend like a vacation were significantly happier mm. um, than those who treated it like a regular weekend. The interesting part is it wasn't actually shifts in how they spent their time that weekend. It was a shift in mindset. And what they had moved away from was the doing mode, was the sense of like, oh, I'm meant to be doing something right now. I'm meant to be, whether it's working, like, checking things off your to-do list. And they went into like, quote unquote, vacation mode, whatever that meant for them. But apparently that what that means is giving you a space to just be. Right. And so I think that that shows like, even trying to encourage people or giving them the tools to help themselves take the breaks that mm. they need from this constant achievement, productivity, doing orientation to simply spend some time to be, then that's, it's so important. 
that's, you know. <laughs> right. And maybe if you're showing these hyperproductive people the data around like it it actually, you know, progressing them in, in a certain way, then then they can click more easily into that consciousness. Like I'm I'm chilling, but I'm still doing something good for myself. <laughs> I mean, to that point, actually, each week in the course, I give them an experiential assignment. So like, basically, I have them do something that research says will make them happier, or more satisfied. Like, in one of the weeks, it is go do acts of kindness, mm. like, do acts of kindness, one to a, someone you don't know, and then one for someone you do know, another week is write a gratitude letter. Another week, it is like, exercise every day. Now, my students, because they're so achievement oriented, they would not take the time to exercise every day or to write someone a gratitude letter or to like do random acts of kindness. But since the grade is on the line, then they will do it. <laughs> and then the great thing is that once they do it and their assignment is to like reflect and write like how, what was the impact on you? Mm -hmm. Then they're like, oh, this is, I wouldn't have made this time unless a grade was on the line. But now that I've done it, wow, this is actually really impactful. And you can see how it sort of benefits them across the day. And then um, later in the course, we get more sort of impactful or sort of, I guess, <laughs> serious assignments where years later, now I'm still hearing from my students of how those have shown up to really benefit them. And they wouldn't have maybe prioritized it without a grade on the line. But I think that actually the pandemic has taught all of us that maybe these are things that we need to prioritize, even mm -hmm. if, you know, I'm not going to give you a grade for it. I want to just double click on what you say about the pandemic before I go back, because I feel like in terms of time management, it got so abstract and, you know, we normally have lived our lives within these constructs of schedule and going here and going to the office and going home and picking someone up from a soccer game and, and all that kind of stuff. And time sort of became this other thing that I think most of us had never really reckoned with. And there was a lot of depression and isolation. And I just wondered, you know, is that because without those constructs and and not understanding like how to shift into the consciousness of time affluence like can it just become too amorphous and like as human beings how much of our schedule if you will like how much do we need that kind of construct around us in order to feel like okay now i am managing this part of my time and i can invest in myself here and i can work there did the pandemic show us that we need that in some way yeah the way one experienced time within the pandemic was very dependent on one's circumstances <laughs> like having young kids and trying to work from home that was like its own sort of issue with time. There were no temporal boundaries of like, this is school time. And there were no spatial boundaries either. It was all sort of right. eating together. And so people actually felt very much like they didn't have enough time. On the other hand, some people found themselves in like sort of you're describing as like, it's almost like these endless days, or yeah. like endless months. And actually, we didn't even know what month it was because it was all just sort of this big blur of an abyss of 
too much. And in our work, not specifically with respect to the pandemic, we've looked at actually what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time or available hours in the day one has and their happiness. Because I actually, we started the work in the context of all of us being sort of too busy and like feeling like there were not enough hours in the day. And in those crazy days, not during the pandemic necessarily, but where you're just rushing around meeting to meeting and then like, you know, kids demands and social obligation, like all this stuff too much. And I know for me, <laughs> in some of those states, I'm like, oh my gosh, the answer is to quit. The answer is to quit my job and move to like a sunny, slow paced island where I would have all the hours to do exactly what I wanted. Then I would be happier. And I think that a lot of people sort of have that daydream. Like if only I had a whole lot more time, then I would be happier. But then as you're (laughs) picking up like in the pandemic where those social obligations no longer in the calendar, these other things no longer in the calendar, and you actually had a lot of time to spend, you see that actually people are less happy. So in the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness, it's an upside down U shape. So it's like a rainbow. So that means it goes down on both sides. So too little time is bad, but also too much available time is bad. And digging into that, what it turns out is that we are driven to be somewhat productive. Yes, we don't want like hyper productivity, but we do need some sense of like knowing how we spent the hours of our day to give a sense of purpose, to give a sense of structure and satisfaction. And that was super fascinating for me, this idea you talk about. If you have less than two hours of free time a day, it's detrimental. But if you have more than five off, is that right? Five hours, you often Yeah, I mean, in that particular data set. Right. Yeah, not everyone, but in this data set, you found that that cohort felt yeah. unmoored or that their 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 lives lack meaning. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. What they reported was a lower sense of productivity, a lower sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And from that, you saw less satisfaction. From those of a too little time, it was because they had higher levels of stress. But with mm-hmm. too much time, it's a lower sense of purpose. But I imagine if they had too much time and they shifted into the vacation mindset, that's is that different? It's interesting because the the benefit of vacations is that they are limited. Like, right. I mean, they themselves are limited. When you get the too much time effect, which actually, as we're talking about, I'm like, that's why the pandemic probably you saw it, is when it's like, Every day, like all the your sort of regular days Mm -hmm. that you just have all the hours available to you and then you spend them and you feel like you have nothing to show for how you spent those hours. That's where you get the negative effect. Vacation is bounded. And so that gives you like, okay, the thing I am doing now is being. It gives you that space sabbaticals also those are bounded so you see the benefit of like okay this is time i'm going to be enriched i'm on sabbatical right now and i will say that i'm very much enjoying it but knowing full well that january 1st i will be back into the swing of things with work but you see retirees actually you see an initial drop in happiness and life satisfaction 
And then, but those who spend their available time, you see in volunteer work, you see a boost in satisfaction because it gives you that sense of purpose or engaging as I mentioned, like in a hobby, something that helps you develop and gives you, gives you a sense of purpose. That's really important. Right. Because I think there's a correlation made at some point between people retiring and then increase in mortality right within a year or something after. Yeah. And it is, it is that sort of lack of purpose. It's also less cognitively engaged and work, work provides that, but yeah. And also, I mean, for many, I mean, the pandemic has sort of made this weird too, but for many, it was a source of connection and Mm. community is the folks that you work with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know it's a controversial topic, but you know, as this kind of hybrid remote in out, like I, I, I sometimes worry that, you know, how, how do you mentor people? What, what is career pathing for people? How do you imbue their work with meaning if everybody's kind of at home on a, on a zoom, but that's another podcast, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I would love you to tell us about the time tracking exercise that you talk about in your book it's so practical and you know there's such great takeaways from it how did that occur to you to to do that and then yeah. what what were the observations you had yeah it's so a big point that i uh making in the course and in the book and from the research is that the answer for our happiness is not about how much available time you have it's really about how you invest the time that you have so that you're maximizing time on what's worthwhile, minimizing time on what is a waste. Mm -hmm. And then the question is like, okay, well, what activities are worthwhile? What activities are a waste? Oftentimes our sort of sense of like, oh, these are activities that I enjoy doing aren't actually what gives you a sense of satisfaction and that you actually enjoy doing. So time tracking So what researchers have used to look at what are those activities that are more positive and more negative is tracking people over the course of their days, seeing what they're doing, and also measuring over the course of their days how they're feeling. So you could pull out what are those activities that tend to be associated with the most positive emotion? What are those activities that tend to be associated with the most negative emotion? On average for Americans, social connection, whether sort of intimately or spending time with family and friends on average tend to be the most positive <laughs> on average for Americans. Commuting, hours spent working, and housework are the least positive. But that's based off of averages. That's the average American, as well as the average example of socializing or the average example of like an hour spent working. But we know, of course, there's times that you're socializing that are not at all fun. And there are hours at work that are actually super fun. Right. So what time tracking, the exercise that I absolutely encourage folks to do is to track their own time for a week, write down for each half hour increment, what are you doing? And as importantly, coming out of it, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. Like, and then, so, and there's a worksheet that's sort of very easy to do, but it, that's basically what you're doing. You're tracking what you're doing and how you felt And at the end of the week, you have this fantastic data set that is yours. So you can look, okay, what are those activities that made me happiest, made me most satisfied? Like you get your most positive activities. 
what are those activities that are negative, draining, unhappy? Also, you can see commonalities across your happiest activities, commonalities across your least happy activities, as well as just how much time you've spent on particular activities. So there you get the waste. My students will be like, holy cow, I am busy. You know, I'm getting my degree. I'm working. I have a busy social life. I'm so busy, yet I had no idea that I was spending a dozen hours on social media, right? Like, they're like, it's, and it's so crazy because they're like, oh, I just thought, you know, it's like a few minutes here, but those few minutes turned into a half hour. And then those half hours like add up to many hours. And that when you have the data right in front of you, you're like, okay. And then, and then they look at their own ratings. So it's not me being like, social media doesn't make you happy and the research says so. They can see from their own ratings. Actually, social media doesn't make me happy. Like it's like a four. Whereas meeting up with my friend for dinner, that's like a nine. But usually people feel too busy to meet up with their friend for dinner, right? So with that data, it's really helpful to be like, okay, these are activities that I can spend less time on. And then you have that time available to reallocate towards activities that do feel more worthwhile, actually so, and you have the data to tell you what those are. So say there are things you glean from this exercise, okay, wow, like I really am miserable when I have to do X, Y, Z at work. How can we reframe that for ourselves? You know, because of course life is full of obligation and we do have to earn a paycheck, et cetera. Totally, yeah. So yeah. how how do you how do we <laughs> <laughs> totally? There, I mean, there's no like, there's no part of this where I'm like, you know, don't go to work, don't commute, don't do housework. Like, there's of course not. And so, how do we make those hours? And oftentimes, the reason commuting and those like hours at work feel so painful is because they feel like a waste. Sort of like it's like you're just trying to get through it to get to something else. So one strategy is super easy, is bundling. So bundling, this is out of work research by Katie Milkman and her colleagues. And they talk about it in the sense of like motivating to do it. I talk about it in the sense of making that time more enjoyable and more fun. So it's you take an activity that you don't like to do, like commuting or like folding laundry or talking to ex-colleague at work or whatever, a work activity not fun. And then you bundle it with something that is more fun. So whether it is uh, you drink wine, when you fold laundry, you listen you to drink music in the car. Totally. Or yeah, you listen to an audiobook. Uh, actually, when people say that they're busy, one of the things that they say, I wish I had more time to read for pleasure. But mm. if every time you got in the car, you turned on an audiobook, then every week or so you've read a book. Or you listen to a really sort of a podcast that teaches you something that inspires you. And so that commute time turns into something more positive. Now, in the work context, a great thing to bundle with is actually genuine social connection. So there is a funny question in the Gallup data that asks, do you have a best friend at work? And it's funny because it's something like my fourth grader would ask, you know, do you have a best friend (laughs) at school? But it's really predictive. Like when they did that survey, they found that only two out of 10 Americans feel like they have a best friend at work. But those who did 
were significantly more engaged in their job. They were more satisfied in their job and their job satisfaction carries over into life satisfaction. And so the question is like, how do you foster friendship at work? And if there is maybe instead of, you know, like an hour of writing an email to your colleague, like, you know what, let's meet for coffee. And then that becomes social connection time. In addition, like, yes, you're talking about next steps on your project, but you're also talking about other sort of pieces of yourself so that you can develop that friendship. So if you bundle social connection with work, then it can make the work time more fun. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spot in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Does friction like a commute or, you know, not liking a task at work or like those, those things that people associated with being unhappy and a waste of time, are those things in life still important for our happiness just because they provide a contrast Yeah. And I would say the wasted time, (laughs) there is not a lot of value in it. Like if it, if it is that it feels like a waste of time, but there is absolutely challenge that can contribute to emotional well-being. So actually, you know, like once you're through it, yeah, you you look back in retrospect and you, you, if you've achieved something through the challenge, you feel happy. If you've learned something from it, or if you've grown from it, mm-hmm. so meaning in life, yes, happiness is a is the actually primary contributor to a sense of meaning, but mm-hmm. you can also have really negative experiences and those can contribute to greater sense of meaning, but only if you make sense of it. If you're like, I learned from it in this way, or I grew from it in this way, and actually I'm glad you asked because another way to make your work hours feel better is by understanding how they contribute to your purpose, like how they contribute to your goals. You're like, well, what is my purpose? And that sounds like a really sort of hard and lofty question, but I talk about the five whys exercise. So that you ask like five layers of why, like, you know, what, what work do you do? You know, I'm a professor, I do research and I teach, but why do I do that? Well, I want to create knowledge, disseminate knowledge. And then I ask five layers of why, and then it led me to really identify for myself. My purpose is to create knowledge about happiness and to disseminate knowledge about happiness. 
And by knowing that, then all of my work activities, even if they're not fun, like email, (laughs) I'm like, oh, if I'm emailing with a collaborator, that's actually about creating knowledge about happiness. Like that feels better to me than just email or emailing a student. Oh, this is about disseminating knowledge about happiness that I've like reframed it from email to activity that contributes to my purpose. And so if you're aware of what your goal is, hopefully it's a goal that aligns with what you care about because that's what's really motivating. But understanding the why of the work you do, then the activity, the work activities, then feel more enjoyable. And actually, even if they feel crummy, you're like, it's okay that this is crummy. There's a reason I'm doing this. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's it's achievement in the sense of being very clear on a particular goal. But the the thing that I think is important to steer away from is sort of achievement for achievement's sake. If you don't even know what goal you're striving for, but when you're clear about the goal that you're striving for, then it's like, okay, this is achievement towards that goal. And then when you have those wins, it's like so much more rewarding. You don't have that sort of general sense of like, where am I going? Or this, like, am I making progress? And it's like, progress to where? That's that's where you get the really negative emotion and sense of being lost. I'm curious, like, how do you recommend that people allocate their time? Like, what's the, is it every day, some exercise and some giving back and some focus time and some leisure time? Like, what is the sort of ideal? I sort of lead folks to this is like, With all of these strategies, how do you design an ideal week? Yes. (laughs) It's not, it's not like day by day, because there will be days, you know, like, but it's helpful to sort of take a step back and instead of even thinking hour by hour, but looking at your week overall, being like, okay, this is where I'm going to prioritize exercise. You know, this is, I'm going to make sure that I do have this moment that's really connecting with the people that are important for you, whether it's meeting up with your friend for dinner. For me, it's like my coffee date with my daughter. It's like, I I absolutely have to make time for that or else at the end of the week, then, you know, yes, I'm not at the pickup line picking them up from school every day because I work, so I can't be. So instead of recriminating myself in that like three <laughs> o'clock hour of like, oh my God, I'm such a bad mom. I'm like, no, I'm not because looking at my week, I have these other really sort of, wonderful connecting times with my kids. And are you intentional about what those are? Like you say, okay, this day at this time, it's I'm taking this one to do this thing. Yeah. And that comes out of time tracking for one thing. You can identify what are those activities that are really fulfilling. For me, the the example of my coffee date with my daughter is we turned something, and this is actually, I think, a helpful strategy It's turning something that's routine into a ritual Mm -hmm. because what routines are, are things that we do regularly and we don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. And so that's good when you're trying to form a habit, but it's bad when it makes you not actually pay attention to these wonderful moments that you're spending. And there's this term hedonic adaptation which is our psychological tendency to get used to things over time. So when you do the same thing over and over again, you're with the same person over and over again, it stops having the same emotional impact. And that's 
good when bad stuff is happening because it makes us more resilient, but it's bad when like in the face of really good things, like the example, like, I just think it's such a vivid one of like, think back to the very first time your partner said, I love you, mm-hmm. like fireworks in your like heart and your mind. And then a few years on, I love you turns into love you as you're like hanging up the phone or walking out the door. <laughs> right. So it's something as profound as the declaration of love from or to the love of your life turns into words that you don't even hear that shows the fact of hedonic adaptation. And it shows how we need to be careful about that and employ strategies so that we continue to pay attention to these wonderful things that are right there in our lives and in our time that we're already spending. And so turning routine into ritual is one of those strategies of my coffee date with my daughter, which was born out of like, me driving Thursday morning carpool, the big kids get out of the car. And then on my way to drop my little one at our preschool next to my office, I would stop at the coffee shop. So it was basically, I wanted caffeine, but we turned this into like every week. It was our ritual. So we had our coffee date mix. We still do this. And now it's like four years later, we're still doing this. And then, so we have the same songs. She gets her hot chocolate. I get my flat light. We, you know, eat our croissants. And this is like 30 minutes where it's just the two of us delighting. And we've turned it into this ritual so that I pay attention to it. So like, not only do I make the time, you know, like schedule meetings around it, or now it's on weekends. So it's like not go to a birthday party before we've had our coffee date. But also when I'm spending the time, I'm like super in it because this is our precious time. And actually, uh, yet another exercise to offset hedonic adaptation is to count how many times you have left to do that thing. Because we think that these everyday experiences that do potentially bring us joy, we think that they're going to continue to happen every day. And so we take them for granted, we don't notice. But if you count how many times you have left, so my coffee day with my daughter, for example, I calculated in our life so far, so the first step, how many times have you done it in your life overall? It's like, including our weekly coffee dates and then during my maternity leave where I'd like sort of bring her along to the coffee shop with me every day. 400 coffee dates in our life so far. And then I, the next step, calculate how many times are you going to do it in the future, accounting for the fact that circumstances will change both in your life and if your happy activity involves someone else. And so I was like, okay, she's seven now. When she turns 12, she'll probably rather go to the coffee shop with her friends than me. And then she's going to go off to college and then like live across the country. So I calculated we have about 230 coffee days left. And then the last step, what percentage of your total do you have left? I realized I have 36%. That's less than half Mm -hmm. coffee days with my daughter left. And she's only seven. And so what's the effect of that? Like initially, you know, tears me, but what it does is it absolutely makes me make the time, but also when spending that time, it's like phone is away, you know, that to-do list, you know, like you and I, it sounds like the constant to-do list and what we're meant to be doing in our head. It's like that gets quieted because this is the time that matters. This is the precious time. So 
That's so beautiful. And, you know, it's sadly something that I only started to think about when my daughter was a senior in high school. I mean, we're, we're, we were together all the time, but she would come into the, to the kitchen sometimes when I was meditating and I was like, oh my God, I only have X amount of these mornings of her coming to get coffee at the same time. Like I need to move my meditation window, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's recognizing. And then the reason that it was very salient to then is because she was about to go to college. But if you'd been reminded actually that those times were limited before then, you know, it sort of motivates you to like, oh, wait, (laughs) I, you know, like, let me slow down. Actually going back to one of your very early questions of like, as we're in this like achievement oriented doing mode, what are some things that we can do to slow down and to give yourself the space for what really matters? Mm -hmm. Like, Like, you know, this piece of what matters this is something that can help you do that is recognizing that these times are, are also urgent because like, we don't think that they're urgent. We're always responding to what seems urgent, like the incoming email, the work meeting, what about, you know, these things that are urgent, but not necessarily important, but so those get prioritized, but we all, we need to prioritize what's important. And this is one way to make those things that aren't seemingly urgent, actually, you recognize that they are, in fact, something that you need to. Yeah. Practice. Well, because if, if you extrapolate it all the way out, like we're dying, our our lives are so finite and we don't bring that into our daily practices. I mean, I, I barely, you know, it's like that understanding of the finiteness of time, whether it's how many coffee dates you have left before someone goes to college or like, you know, in recently turning 50, I started to contemplate this all for the first time in my life. Like, oh, wait a minute. You sort of barrel through the first half of your life, like thinking you're invincible and you've just got to do everything. And as you say, so reactive to what's happening. And, and then there's been for me anyway, like a real slowing down that's happened or that I want to keep striving towards. And that I've noticed this kind of sweetness of life permeating with the slowing down. And I wish that I had thought about or felt life like this earlier, you know, that it was okay to give myself permission to take breaks or, you know, to slow down, to, to be more intentional, to not be multitasking. And it's really a shame that our culture, I think, has us all firing, you know, all cylinders. Yeah. And so later in the course, as well as later in the book, I have exercises that do lead people to think about life, life overall. One of the exercises is actually to write your eulogy. And so this is projecting forward to the end of your life and writing down, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to say about you? And one of my students, again, like in the, a grade was on the line. She's like, I'm really sorry, professor. I know I'm forfeiting a grade. Like it gives me anxiety to think about my death. So I'm not going to do this assignment. I'm like, no problem. Let me reframe it. Write down what life you want to live. Because it's actually not an exercise right. in death. It's what life do you want to live? And taking that perspective. And she's like, okay. And actually we found in our research that those who take a broader perspective of 
time thinking in terms of years and life overall instead of hour by hour report greater satisfaction and meaning in life and happiness in their days. And I think that the reason for that is because taking that broader perspective clarifies what is important. It clarifies what does matter, your values, your overarching purpose. And so that eulogy exercise absolutely clarifies. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, what matters to me? What are my values? How do I want to be described? And by thinking about years and life, then that informs how you spend your hours. And it's really helpful. So it gives you, it sounds like sort of pulling from some of your language, like it almost like licenses you to like slow down and create space. But I think you could also sort of think about it as like, it's just clarity on the dimension, like the pieces of your life that matter. And like, yes, part of it, like, can be that work that like, you're, you have these goals, and you're really like driven towards them. And, but also, it's like, the coffee date with my daughter, it's having coffee with your daughter when she walks into the kitchen. It is, you know, that time with, for reflection or for yourself to take care of yourself. But all to say taking that broader life perspective is very valuable, even for young people. So (laughs) it is, it's great to do these exercises when you're younger too, because that, that helps guide you, not like me or you telling folks, it's like, these are the activities that matter. It just, people know for themselves, like, these are the things that matter and I'm going to make time for it. And when I'm spending the time, I'm going to pay attention, (laughs) you know, so I don't miss out on that happiness. One thing I've been thinking about since I knew I was going to talk to you and thinking about like productivity and how I spend my time. I feel like I'm at work a little bit caught in a bad pattern where like I sit down to have like, okay, I'm going to have, you know, an hour or two of just concentrated work time, you know, say I want to focus more on something broader vision or strategy, and I want to map something out. And then I find myself invariably getting caught up in like little minutiae and then emails and a text comes in and like, and then I'm dealing with another problem. And then I'm like, shit, I haven't done this yet. And it's like the time that I carved out to be productive, all of a sudden feels really unproductive. Yeah. What are strategies that I can implement to kind of keep that time more focused towards the part of work that a I'm trying to focus on and b like that are that is the more kind of like broader more visionary kind of stuff yeah and it's so important to protect that time because when you don't and you're just reacting to the incoming pings and questions then you get to the end of the week that's where you feel that true sense of time poverty like I've been so busy but I haven't actually gotten anything done and you feel dissatisfied and unfulfilled. Yes, yes, yes. This is where I am this week. (laughs) (laughs) So it is about carving out, but truly protecting that time. And that includes putting phone away, like Mm. out of sight, because actually work shows that even the presence of the phone is a source of distraction. But 
more than often because it makes you think about other things that you could be doing. And it's so easy to turn it over and like pick it up and respond to things. It's almost like productive procrastination. You're like, I'll just do this little thing real quick, but (laughs) that pulls you out of like, then you never actually spend the time that you need. So put phone away, close out of email, close the door, do make this time in a portion of your day where you're most alert. So like, I know I'm a morning person. So nine to 11, like I am not available. Like you could even put a, you know, out of office on your email. It's like, I am not available for these, you know, because it's so important Mm -hmm. to protect that time or else you don't make the progress. You don't sort of achieve on these goals that ultimately matter to you. There's little things that you can do to like help you protect, like also like clear off your desk. When I was writing the book, you know, I'd like carve out like, this is my writing time. And I'd have these little cacti, like succulents, which don't need a lot of attention, but they're like on my desk. And the amount of attention I would give them, I'd like be preening and like watering them because it was like anything to distract (laughs) myself from doing what I actually had to do. So like clear your desk, even of succulents, so that you spend the time because you do like getting into flow, right? Yes. That state where we are most creative, we are at our best, like all of our skills are so we lose sense of time. You cannot get into flow in little bits of time and you can't get into flow when distractions are coming in. So if there's any hope of you getting into a flow state, then Mm -hmm. you have to protect at all, at all costs. It's really true. And it's almost like, it's like the devil on your shoulder, you know, it's like, and also I find for myself, my, my, I want to work on the computer, but then emails come in and my texts are on my computer and like, something catches your eye and maybe it's best to just go back to pen and paper for those kinds of exercises. I don't know. Yeah. Or like set up your computer. Like you can, you know, like I know set up your app so that they are in like, do not disturb mode. Totally. (laughs) I just never. So how are you as a parent kind of bringing this philosophy to your children? Like how, you know, are you parenting them to understand the finiteness of time and the importance of presence and like the deleterious nature of social media? Like, are you, I'm just curious as a parent, even though like, it's probably too late now and I already fucked them up because they're 16 and 18, but like, you know, what are the ways that we can encourage these ways of thinking in our own kids? Well, my kids are littler. For my kids, the way that I do it is by me modeling the behavior right that it's when we have our no phone zones so we have no phone zones dinner time as well as like portions of the weekend that it's like phones are away and they love it because they have my attention too it's not just me like me you know kids get off your devices right we're all in it together. And then they love that. So they look forward to the time too. So them getting my attention in those, those portions, as well as then they, you know, can see that I'm working really hard and, you know, like we have our coffee dates that I I talk about, like the limited nature of it and how special it is. I sort of highlight those, 
But the role of distraction is actually really important that you can tell your kids about. And there's plenty of research to back it up and give them like one of the first assignments in my courses to actually have my students do a digital detox. So six hours disconnected and they're like, what? But inevitably, like that first hour, they're like super anxious and like, you know, but people are trying to reclaim. And then they will at the end, like hour two, they're like, wow, this is actually really freeing. Mm -hmm. And you become more present. And actually, people become more productive because you're not getting distracted. You're like, you have the space to really do what you want to do, whatever that is. So I think it would be. Carving out no phone zones. Honestly, I think that that is the most simple and effective thing. No phone zones during time that are important, both interpersonally, but also that important work time, as you were saying, that time should also be no phone zones. Cassie, you are phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks for listening to my chat with Cassie Holmes. For more from Cassie, please check out her book, Happier Hour. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.